Can you imagine if they'd put out an all-female shortlist? Immediately, people would have said, well, this is political. When you want to kind of see the reality of a situation, all you need to do is what I was called the flip test. You just need to change things around. Imagine if it was only people of colour and black people, or imagine if it was only women. It was back to this idea that literature is neutral. But when you decode that, that actually means a certain sort of white male voice. I was the first girl to serve in Chichester Cathedral. And the bishop at the time was very opposed to women having any voice in the church. So I was simply told to put my hair down the back of the cassock so nobody noticed. (laughs) A tweedy arm went up at the back of the room. I later discovered belonged to a Daily Express journalist. But I said, you know, gentleman at the back, and he said, are you a lesbian? And that is on record, the very first question ever asked about the women's prize. And I said, well, no, are you? And everybody laughed and that was okay, but it did set the tone. Hello and welcome to this live podcast recording of How I Found My Voice Live, the now award-winning podcast. I'm Samira Ahmed and we go behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shape their success. How did writers, politicians and performers grow up to become such great and unique communicators? My guest today is a multi-million selling novelist and playwright whose books have been translated into 38 languages. Kate Moss is best known for her Languedoc trilogy, Labyrinth, Sepulchre and City set in medieval France. Her latest, The City of Tears, is part of a quartet of novels following two families across 300 years from Carcassonne in France to 19th century South Africa. It's the Burning Chambers a sequence of books. Kate is also a real activist, one of the founders of the Women's Prize for Fiction and That was set up to correct the lack of recognition of female writers in reviews and major literary prizes. And she's also on the committee that runs the now global Women of the World Festival. Wow. Uh, Kate, welcome to How I Found My Voice. Lovely to see you. I want you to take me back to Sussex, which is where you grew up, but I know you live in Sussex now. What kind of family, what kind of upbringing did you have? Well, I thought I had a really normal upbringing. And it was only when I went out into the world and met other people, I realised that I had been very, very lucky. So I grew up with two parents who were very loving and wonderful and two younger sisters. And we all sat down to have supper together at six o'clock when my father got back from the office. So it was like the tiger who came to tea. And I looked like that girl in the 60s of the tiger who came to tea, you know, sort of having the coat over her pyjamas and and going out. And you don't realise because you we all accept our own normals, if you like, So it was just that I know that everything that I've achieved is because I had so much support at home and had that very, very stable, very warm upbringing, old fashioned upbringing. And of course, it's why partly, you know, I returned home to Sussex when I was becoming a parent myself. (laughs) And were you always a reader? Did any books influence you? Oh, yes, completely. So we had bedtime stories, you know, that was the thing. And so I have two younger sisters and my dad was therefore dispatched to read me my bedtime stories. And he chose the books that had meant a lot to him when he was a child. 
And they were completely inappropriate. You know, when I was five, he read me King Solomon's Minds, which is violence and sex and mayhem from start to finish. And then, of course, my mum discovered what he was reading and sort of ripped the books away. But it was exactly that. And there's that moment, isn't there, when you start to want to read on your own. And I was an Enid Blyton girl. And there are all sorts of issues about Enid Blyton in terms of her attitudes to people, her attitudes to, well, almost everything. But in terms of old-fashioned adventure storytelling, every adult in an Enid Blyton novel is derelict or hopeless. It's just the two girls and the two boys in The Famous Five and Timmy the Dog against the world. And I grew up reading those sorts of books, Little House on the Prairie, Anne of Green Gables, you know, all of those things. There was never a time when I wasn't reading. I love the idea that you had that. Then you also had the Ryder Haggard stories yes. that your dad read you with like wild adventure. What a fantastic fusion going on in, in the young Kate brain. Now, you were raised in a in the Church of England as a kind of active Christian. And it's quite a religious family, I think it's fair to say. There were people, you know, who were in the clergy. Can you tell me a bit about this setup and and how that environment shaped you? Growing up Church of England in the 1960s, it was very far from being religious. You know, nobody talked about it. It was just kind of what you did on a Sunday. You went to church and everybody had Sunday lunch and it was all of those sorts of things. But my grandfather was a vicar. Uh, my godmother, Sister Catherine, was an Anglican nun and an amazing woman. She became a nun after the war. She drove ambulances during the war, Second World War. And then when she that was over, she thought, you know, actually, I'd like to devote my life to service. And she only died a few years ago at the age of 104. And she was extraordinary. And my aunt, Margaret Booker, was one of the founders for the movement for the ordination of women. I can't remember a single conversation about faith or religion or what it meant. Just it was a quiet sort of part of village life. You know, and I went along and I was a server. I was the first girl to serve in Chichester Cathedral. And the bishop at the time was very opposed to women having any voice in the church. So I was simply told to put my hair down the back of the cassock so nobody noticed, <laughs> which I did. And then, you know, I suppose the thing is I write about faith and the consequences of faith. I write about war and religious war. And there's no doubt that my grounding in that, just it being a normal part of everyday life, of course, has been very important to me because there, were, there was a moment at which I thought, actually, as a feminist, I can't subscribe to this language. I can't subscribe to this sort of hierarchy and structure. But the underlying sense of there being a community and the beauty of theology and language and history and archaeology, all of those things that come with it, have, of course, never left me. I'm interested in, you know, when you talked about being the first a young woman to serve in the cathedral and having to put your head on the back of the cassock. I think you've described it as your first feminist moment. Is that right? Well, yes, in a way, because I, you know, I grew up in a small town, Chichester, where I, I'm speaking to you now and where I live. But I can very clearly remember stand, you know, being in the cathedral and suddenly hearing the mankind, men, just that sort of absence of woman and female voices and thinking, Oh, I can't say these words anymore. I, I just can't do it. So, you know, now I have that sort of sense that wherever I'm traveling, I go into a cathedral or a church and light a candle for my parents, both of whom are now gone. My father had a very strong faith and it was a wonderful thing for him at the end of his life because he absolutely believed he was at, at the beginning of a new adventure. 
Um, and that was, of course, a beautiful thing as I sat with him as he was dying, that he felt completely sure that he was going to see his mother again, the men who had died beside him in the war. There was no fear for him. And that was a, a beautiful thing. But I can completely remember standing there thinking, I can't say this. I can't say man meaning me anymore. Well, I think it's just it's such an interesting thing. It's partly about the exact age you were when these things were happening. But it's your godmother, you said, who was involved in the movement campaign for the my ordination aunt, of women. My your aunt, aunt yes, she was, yeah. And I mean, I remember being at the General Synod when the vote was passed Wonderful. and the whoop yeah. that went up yeah. from the deacons, yeah. many of whom would have been, you know, of the age of your aunt. So you got to see how long it took for some of those changes to come through. And I just wanted to add to, on to that because you went to Oxford University in around 1980, which was, I checked, it was 79 was about the very beginning of when single sex colleges were just starting to go mixed. So it feels like, you know, you were living through this kind of wave of feminism starting to change things. Yes. And I wonder how that felt. I think also that if you grow up in an environment that's supportive and happy, and I went to a huge comprehensive school, 2,000 pupils, but it was all girls. Um, and most of the teachers were women. And so I was very naive and very young for my age, I would say. And so when I got to university, it was a real eye-opener in the sort of old-fashioned parlance about, OK, people have got had very different experiences to me. They've seen a lot more and they've travelled a lot more, but often they've had less support. And so I didn't really ever think of things in terms of the iniquities of life that affect many, many people. Because if you grow up in a, a small town, even if it's a cathedral city, and everybody has much the same experience as you, you're not seeing a lot of the things that other people see. And my wonderful aunt, we went to her ordination, which was in Chelmsford Cathedral. And there was this extraordinary moment that my aunt would never have called herself a feminist. She just was a priest. And the bishop doing it, you know, had to say, if anybody wants to say anything, and a man did get up and did say all the stuff about women are not intellectually capable, they are too stupid to be, I mean, he said all of the things. And this wonderful collection of women, the bishop then said, between you, you have 700 years of service to this church. So all of these things were happening for me at about the same sort of time. <laughs> After university, your first job was in publishing. Is that right? Yes. I finished at university and like many people who read English, you know, there wasn't an obvious path. I didn't know what I wanted to do. When I was there, I'd done a lot of campaigning and activism. I'd done a lot of theatre and had the incredible privilege, truthfully, of sitting around and just reading lots of books. And so I thought, well, you know, I'd quite like that to continue. <laughs> and I had this lovely idea that in publishing, you sat around, you know, probably with a pipe and, you know, with your feet up on a, you know, an open fire. But that's what publishing was about. But it really was more about what women and girls' lives were like then, that like almost every single one of my friends, I had done a secretarial course in my gap year. I, I wasn't traveling. I was earning money to go to university and had trained as a secretary. And so when I left university, I just signed up with a temping agency and was sent to a publishing company. And I temped there for a couple of weeks. And then somebody's assistant handed in their notice. And in those days, there wasn't the idea of let's advertise jobs and all of these things. So I was just offered a job and I didn't know what else to do. So I accepted a job. 
And it was wonderful. I met there the person who is my editor, Maria Wright, who is an extraordinary editor. And we met when I was the secretary and she was the editorial assistant. And here we are nearly 40 years later with her publishing my novels. Now, you edited Tony Benn's diaries, didn't you? I did, yeah. Yeah, well, one <laughs> of the editors. The, well, I should say, yes. So the left-wing senior Labourer at Party MB who kept daily audio tapes of his life and published several volumes of his diaries. They were notoriously long. I wonder if that experience <laughs> helped you on the road to being a, a novelist. No. I, no, I can say that it really <laughs> didn't help me to being a novelist at all. But it did help me to understand about how you structure a book and that even if you're doing something which is hugely about veracity, that there needs to be some kind of narrative that helps a reader find their way through. It was an extraordinary experience. Tony Benn was the first non-family member when I had my first child. He arrived at Lewisham Hospital with a present because I'd gone into labour six weeks early and we were supposed to be working that day. And he arrived um, and lots of people said, is that your dad? Um, and um, and he was an extraordinary person to work with because it taught me two things. Firstly, in terms of publishing, that you need to really be on top of the subject. You can't just go in cold as a young person and go, oh, what does this mean? You You need to do the work before you can make a contribution. It taught me in terms of activism and a side of that, that there are good people and bad people, and I use those very banal terms deliberately. In every walk of life, in every political party, you go out on tour with Tony Benn, and he was often vilified in the press, but also you go into the office and you see how everybody feels confident and empowered. You go out on tour with him, and, and people would come up and give him flowers. You know, so that sense of somebody trying to do good in the world. I also learned because I published other diaries and political books, Michael Heseltine being one of them, went into Michael Heseltine's office. I think at that time there were six people working there, four women, three people were white, other people were people of colour and black people. And I learned at that moment, again, from this rather naive background, that it's about how people behave. It's not about talking the talk. And some of the worst examples of these things I saw when I was a young trade unionist and got told to sit down and shut up and it wasn't a girl's place to be here. And I learned a lot from those early days of publishing is listen to what somebody says, watch how they behave. And they were great lessons to learn that it's it's about how you are in the world. What was the union that you were an activist? In? I was the, hilariously, called the mother of chapel Yes. for the NUJ book oh. section. <laughs> and that was where I kind of graduated from collective feminism to collective action about people's working rights and all of those things. And again, that was an amazing thing to do because it meant that even though I was very, very lowly in publishing, I was in a room, it seems extraordinary looking back on it, negotiating with the bosses of the companies about things like sexual mm -hmm. harassment and you know crashes and equal pay and that was, again, a really good thing to learn because I learned when I was trying to negotiate a sexual harassment clause that the very, very lovely men that I was negotiating with who were people who behaved properly and well to their employees and, you know, I knew them. They were my bosses. Just found it impossible to believe about other people behaving terribly. So they didn't understand that you needed these clauses in case something happened. So everything that I did in publishing, as well as learning my own 
craft was also learning about how the world works in a way that I don't think I would have learned so quickly that, you know, just watch how people behave. You know, you, you oh, can tell a great deal from that, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> I do know. No, no, so the NEJ is my union. I was listening to that conversation with great interest. Uh, what came first for you, Kate, the campaigning voice or the writing voice? I don't think of them as separate. I think very straightforwardly that the world is made up of all of us and therefore that everybody should have a voice. My historical fiction is about saying, let's put women's unheard and underheard stories at the heart of history. We are given a very partial view of history, partly because of the nature of the discipline of how history happened and um, the way that people started to write about history. And by definition, you know, de facto, it was it was a very narrow band of people doing the writing. So I would say that all of these things work together. But I do feel that with novels, particularly historical fiction, sometimes fiction sneaks beneath people's guards, that you can often achieve more in a novel in terms of not changing a point of view, because I write novels to tell a great story and to entertain and to put wonderful um, characters on the page and for readers to say to me, I couldn't put it down. That's why I write fiction. But at the same time, I think that, you know, with The City of Tears, my current novel, my heroes, they are wealthy, successful Huguenot family who go to Paris for a royal wedding in 1572 and have to leave with the shirt on their backs. And they are refugees in the space of a few hours. Now, I don't write the novel because I'm trying to make a point about refugees could be any of us. But at the same time, that when I get feedback from readers, people often say, ah, yes, oh my God, they just had to leave. They had to decide whether they should stay or go. And so I, I believe passionately that fiction can change the world, that we stand in other people's shoes when we read a novel. And I love the sly power of fiction for that reason. Of course, absolutely, my activism has been about trying to empower other women and to stand shoulder to shoulder with other women and to make sure that everybody has a seat at the table. But in my fiction, I'm doing the same. You said Labyrinth was the first novel that you wrote where you really felt you'd found your voice, but it was your fifth book. Yes. So how, how was it different? Why was, was that the moment? Overnight success at the age of 45. <laughs> the first four books, two were fiction and non-fiction is different. I think of myself as a novelist first in terms of my writing and a playwright second. People listening might be writers themselves or might be starting to write themselves. It is a fatal thing to sit on your own shoulder being a judge and an editor before you've written the work. What I did with the earlier novels is I was always on the outside looking in. I was like, you know, sucking my teeth and, oh, that's not very good. Whereas what, of course, you have to do in a novel, you have to be entirely inside it. So it has to come from the inside out. And with Labyrinth, it was a combination of going to Carcassonne, to falling in love with that part of the southwest of France, Languedoc, to falling in love with the history, but in that instance of the Cathars, a group of heretical Christians so-called who lived and died and persecuted in that part of France in the 10th, 11th and 12th and 13th centuries. So no longer thinking, how am I writing this? Just 
getting on with it. You bought a home in Carcassonne in 1989. And I wonder if it's just a coincidence, it turned out to be the year that the Berlin Wall was to fall. And, <laughs> you know, I remember backpacking around Germany and Austria that summer and you knew something was coming. And I just wonder how it affected you, you know, having that that place of your own in France and living there part of the year. It's so interesting you mentioned that because I think now it's hard to describe to people what that moment of the Berlin Wall coming down felt like. I can remember very, very clearly sitting six months pregnant in our little house in London and watching the wall come down and weeping and weeping for all the reasons that we understand, but also weeping for the fact, and this again is why I write historical fiction, that can you imagine being a parent who the week before had seen their child shot for trying to cross the no man's land? But that day, the guns didn't fire. And that, I can remember so clearly thinking that, that that's what history is all about, that there are people of great courage and stamina and they just keep going and you don't know when that moment's coming and you know many of your listeners will know the greatest anti-war novel of all time I think all quiet on the western front the last paragraph of that was he died on a day when all was quiet on the western front so I I remember watching that and that moment of change that it felt in Europe and being in Caucasus it felt like home the very first time we went there I was pregnant my husband and mother in-law, wonderful Granny Rosie, um, who lives with us now and still, they went and they came back at the end of the weekend with this tiny little house that had been lived in by one woman for all of her life. She'd been born in the bed and died in the bed and it had no bathroom and it was, you know, earth floors, but it was, it looked up on the medieval city walls of Carcassonne. And I didn't go till, you know, we'd bought it in November 1989 and it was misty and it was cold. And I walked through the modern town, the Bastide, and you could hear footsteps somewhere elsewhere in the mist. And suddenly I walked over to the Pont Vieux and saw the medieval citadel ahead on the hill. And it was a coup de foudre. I just felt, oh, I see I belong here. So the latest novel that, you know, we've been talking about the City of Tears, it follows these two families over 300 years from Carcassonne to the Netherlands to 19th century South Africa. And this one, you, you really planned out the whole sequence which I don't think you'd ever done before on that scale. Tell me about how you saw this, because it's quite well, an epic scale. It is. And I remember the first interview I did for The Burning Chambers, which was the beginning of the quartet, was with you, Samira, which was a wonderful moment. And it felt like I'd come back to writing historical fiction, having not been able to write historical fiction for a while. What I have is I have a sense of the character of these books. I have a sense of the land that I'm covering, the history that I'm covering, the way that I will be putting imagined characters as witnesses to real history. But actually, within each of the novels, I don't know what's going to happen. So with The City of Tears, I started writing. I knew it would begin with the family in their estate in the southwest of France, in Puyvert, deciding whether to accept the invitation to the royal wedding of Henry of Navarre and the daughter of Catherine de Medici. I knew they would go. But beyond that, I didn't know who in the family would go. I didn't know what would happen to them because the most notorious engagement of the wars of religion is probably the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre on the 24th of August, 1572. And 
maybe 3,000 Huguenots and other people were massacred that night. And then there were maybe as many as 70,000 who were massacred in copycat instances, the length and breadth of France in the next two weeks. But what was going to happen to my characters? What was their story? Because the reason people read historical fiction is not for the facts. They expect them to be right and they want the backdrop to be there. They're reading for the story. And so as I started to write, I discovered, oh, it's a lost child story. It's a Sophie's Choice novel. And that took me by surprise. It wasn't what I was expecting at all. And of course, they do flee and not everybody makes it out. And they flee to the great refugee city of the 16th century and the 17th century, Amsterdam. And they there build a home. Again, I didn't know what was going to happen in any of those stories. So I know the scope of the novels. I know the ambition of the novels. I know that they are following T.S. Eliot's four quartets in terms of the elements, that there's fire, there's water, book three is air, and book four in South Africa is earth. Um, but beyond that, I don't know what's going to happen till I sit down at my desk. I'm fascinated by how you have this combination of really detailed research on the historical setting, but then your imagination is totally free yeah. and you follow the characters. I think that's a remarkable combination and a powerful one. I was thinking as well, and I know it's something you've been asked recently, that you know, with Brexit, a lot of people are wondering about you know writing fiction to deal with the changes we're going through. I mean, you mentioned All Quiet on the Western Front as this kind of great novel of the First World War, which was written 10 years after. I wondered, have you ever thought about writing historical fiction that's perhaps more recent, maybe back even just to the 70s and 80s? And, you know, the big political changes that were changing Britain, which in a way we're still seeing the aftershocks of, aren't we? I think the thing is that my first two novels were contemporary novels. And I, f I love history. And I feel that we learn more about who we are from looking at where we came from than sometimes we, we do with holding the mirror up. And I think there are some fantastic contemporary novelists. I think a lot of the really great writing about state of the nation is happening in crime writing, actually. And you see the state of a nation through, you know, whether it's an Ian Rankin novel or, you know, whoever your, your particular favourites are. But for me, I find the more recent past, the living memory past, I just don't think it's my voice. I do think that there will be some extraordinary fiction and plays that will come out of this period of time. But I think we're not there yet. I think there is a danger in writing too soon when the history is still live, that you can imprint a false narrative on where we are. I do have an idea for a series of crime novels. They're set in the 1940s. And I think that that's probably as close as I'm going to get. <laughs> about another side of your writing voice, which is the activist voice in a very explicit way, which is the setting up of the Women's Prize for Fiction. You were one of the co-founders of it. And I gather it was the Booker Prize shortlist in 1991, the all-male shortlist that was the trigger. Why was that the trigger? The issue was that nobody noticed it was an all-male shortlist. And uh, several of us said, can you imagine if they'd put out an all-female shortlist? Immediately, people would have said, well, this is political. You've done it deliberately. And often, when you want to kind of see the reality of a situation, all you need to do is what I was called the flip test. You just need to change things around. Imagine if it was 
only people of colour and black people. Or imagine if it was only women, as it were, or imagine if it was only people with disabilities or, you know, whatever, and see how people react to those things. So it was back to this idea that literature is neutral. But when you decode that, that actually means a certain sort of white male voice. This is not in any way saying that I don't love white male voices. I absolutely do. It's more about prizes matter because they keep books of quality on the shelf. And they also are the way quite often that readers find books. So if you are within the prize network, not honouring and acknowledging a huge amount of the literature that's being published, then of course, readers are just not hearing about the books that are out there. So a group of us, men and women, got together and said, what are we going to do about this? And again, always there's a choice, isn't there? The choice is to complain and do nothing or to do something positive. So when setting up the prize, we just thought, well, we will set up a prize, having done the research and discovered that some 60% of novels published were authored by women, some 75% of novels bought were bought by women, but fewer than 9% of novels ever shortlisted for literary prizes were by women. So the issue wasn't access to market or actually purchasing. The issue was the honouring and acknowledging of women's work as literature. I love that you have the statistics there, that it boiled down to 9% getting the literary recognition. Data is power. Data is power. And if you want to take people with you, because for me, it's about making a world where women and men and everybody feels that they're an equal participant. It's not about leaving anybody out. And my lovely dad, he was born in 1924. And so he was a man of his age and his type. When I was trying to explain about writing my own historical fiction and also about the Women's Prize because these things were all happening at the same sort of time. And I said, the thing is, they're like the adventure stories you used to read me. It's just that in my books, the women get to have the swords. And he said, darling, I've waited all of my life for a woman with a sword on a horse to come and rescue me. (laughs) And when I was trying to explain about the Women's Prize, he came out with this brilliant and beautiful comment. And he said, oh, so it's not about shutting doors. It's about getting a bigger table. And that's what the Women's Prize has been about, about exceptional writing from all over the world by women for men and women who will enjoy reading it. It was very tough setting it up. I'm very glad social media didn't exist because that, I think, would have been very challenging. I want to ask about that now. I think what's really striking is how we take it for granted now, 25 years after it was established, that this is hugely, you know, prestigious prize. Remind us of how people reacted at the time, including, I think, the first media question you got about it? When I first started to go out onto the radio and and television and newspapers saying this, I was taken aback by the ferocity of response. And it fell into two camps. One group I had a great deal of sympathy for, the other I didn't. So the one I had sympathy for was feminists and women much older than me saying, we're worried that this is regressive that we have spent all of our time trying to be as women allowed into the room. And you're now saying, let's go and have a different room. And I had a great deal of sympathy for that. But I would say, the thing is, what would you suggest if we want to try and change the way that women's writing is valued? You know, nothing is perfect, but in the end, it was the best way of addressing that. And so the 25 years have proved, Uh, you know, millions of readers have read thousands of books uh, that have come through the Women's Prize. And it's made it possible for many more women to be taken seriously as writers. And it's... No, it's absolutely paid off. So that was credit to you and your co-founders for having the faith that this would establish itself. But what was the other side? Well, the other side of it was people would look me in the eye and say, 
if women were any good, they'd win the real prizes. And then you would have to have the conversation about, it's not as simple as that. It's about what is seen as valuable, what's not seen as valuable, that a male writing voice is often seen as neutral and a female writing voice is Wasn't seen as Wasn't it even more crude than that at times? I mean, oh, that, no, it was. You know, there, there, there was a terrible thing. When we actually launched, um, I gave a very enthusiastic speech and I did think that... Uh, that the room, when we were at the ICA, that um, people would throw their hats into the air like a Bruegel painting. You know, that's this what I was imagining. This is the of contemporary art. Yes, exactly. And then I said, are there any questions? And a tweedy arm went up at the back of the room. I later discovered belonged to a Daily Express journalist. But I said, you know, gentleman at the back. And he said, are you a lesbian? And that is on record, the very first question ever asked about women's prize. And it was just like, and I said, well, no, are you? And everybody laughed and that was okay. But it did set the tone. It was very, very hard, but I rang up. It was the only time I talked directly to the anonymous donor. And she was at that stage a woman in her 80s. And I said, I really hope that you're not regretting that you have backed us because although this all looks very aggressive and I would go on um, radio programs and the person would argue against me that this was a terrible idea and it was just proving that women were second rate and would come off air and then they would take their microphone off and say, we think it's a great idea, but our editor said we have to come on and argue against you. And she just said, my dear, we went through much worse when we were trying to get the vote. This is what I find comes through talking to you so much is the sense of knowing that there are generations who came before us who yeah. fought battles and we're picking up those battles and continuing them. And that you saw that with your own family and you saw it with these older women who were willing to back the prize. Many feminists, I think, of our generation, if I put it in the bracket, feel there's a bit of a concern about perhaps people forget yeah. that it's a long-term battle. And right now, with the pandemic, we're seeing concern about a lot of hard-won rights being eroded. It was amazing how quickly women were back at home looking after kids and not being furloughed for being pregnant. And I wonder how you see things now, because you do have a strong public voice and you do use it as an activist. Yes. Well, I think two things. I think, firstly, we should be listening to older women and we should be listening to younger women. And we should all be listening to each other because each generation has their own lightning point, I suppose. You know, my generation of feminists, it was about pornography. The generation before it was about equal pay. And neither of these things have really quite been solved. And there are different issues now, I would say, to do with gender identity and a, a much more inclusive sense of how many people were left out by the feminist movements of the past. And I think all of that is fabulous as well. But I think it's also... This is again comes back to being a historical fiction writer, which is that history is a pendulum. Explain this. Well, it, it swings backwards and forwards. We don't learn. Things don't improve and stay improved. Um, at every period of history, there have been moments where women have an enormous amount of um, agency and power, and then things can go backwards. That's the same for issues about race, for issues about um, disability, for gender identification. We know all of these things. We must learn how the rights were won in order to be able to protect them. Because I think it's fabulous. You know, my children are 28 and 30, and they find some of the conversations about the Me Too generation about what women put up with at work, just inexplicable. And that is brilliant that they cannot imagine. I don't know a woman of my age, I'm nearly 60, who hasn't had to deal with that kind of 
wandering hands and worse. Totally agree. That's something that's changed. That's fantastic. It still goes on everywhere. And there's enormous differences in terms of who has the power and in different industries and all of these things. But it was just completely endemic. So I think that it's very important to know our history because otherwise we can't protect it, as we might, you could say, are seeing in America with abortion rights. You know, if you don't know how those battles were won in the first place, then it's very hard to defend them if suddenly they come under attack. Also understanding why they're important and why they still need to be protected. Um, You recently started a social media campaign, hashtag woman in history, asking people to nominate women who've been overlooked by the history books. I think it's interesting you doing it as someone who has written about real historical events, but focused on ordinary women in extraordinary times. What inspired that? And and have there been any favourite nominations? (laughs) It's been an absolute joy. It was one of those things that I spent obviously a lot of time in the archives and it's very, very clear, particularly if you're writing about the 16th century, that you would be forgiven for thinking that the only women who existed were queens and mistresses of kings. And Whereas the world has always been women and men doing all of the things together. And it matters because quite often a false view of history is used to justify decisions made in the present. The idea that women never did this or women never were there or they're not capable of doing this. And so knowing the truth of history, rather than cleaving to a, a partial view of history, matters a great deal because it does influence policy making and how people's lives are influenced now. But with writing The City of Tears, I wanted, rather than just simply to talk about my novel, I wanted to talk about other women who were not in the history books. What I did not expect was it to explode in a way that has been thousands and thousands of nominations from all over the world, from men as well as women. And that, of course, is great because it makes me feel, yeah, people do want to celebrate amazing people. And it it matters because there is the kind of the lone wolf view of history, which is, yeah, okay, well, that one woman did it, but the other women didn't do any of these things. And this is why it's quite important. You quite often see within any movement, the suffragettes is a very, very good example of this, that the narrative around that tends to focus on a very tiny group of people of a very particular type. And they were extraordinary, the Pankhursts. But there were a lot of other suffragettes as well who get left out. So, you know, the very famous Rosa Billingshurst, you know, who was disabled suffragette, the working class suffragettes, the women of colour, the usual things. We all understand how this works. Your colleague, Anita Anand, has written a a brilliant biography of Sophia Dulip Singh. Who was one of the suffragettes who was an Indian princess, wasn't she? Indian princess, who was also in there as well. So for me, the campaign was let's celebrate some incredible women from every period of history and just share their names. We've already mentioned a couple. Are there are there a couple of particular standout ones that you you were really astounded by? Of course, Mary Seacole has been nominated a great deal. The extraordinary Mary Anning, the paleontologist, the fossil hunter, she has come up a lot. Eleanor of Aquitaine has been very popular. Faro Farakatad, who is the Iranian poet who died very young, she has been nominated quite a few times. Wonderful Bubalina, the Greek military commander who, you know, sort of stood firm, um, the Queen of, of Jansi. Oh, the Rani of Jansi, Lakshmi yeah, Bai. Yeah, She's absolutely. my personal favourite. Exactly. So, <laughs> and, and uh, one of my favourites is Ellen E. Armstrong, who was the first ever black female magician 
And you just think, oh my God, the odds on that. Well, there's a whole list there. I'm going to um, go to some questions now, Kate, because you've got loads that have come in. A simple one first. Kate, who's your favourite writer? There are two writers that stay with me all the time. One is Emily Bronte and Wuthering Heights, because that is, I think, genuinely a novel that changed what it was possible for women to write. It was ambitious. It's not a love story, of course. It's a story of obsession. It's a story of violence. It's a story of ghosts. It's a story of landscape. It was just its own self. And I think that that's incredibly inspiring. So she stays with me. And the other is T.S. Eliot and Four Quartets. I mean, all of T.S. Eliot. But I think there is something about his writings that, you know, in times of the worst times of my life, which have been the loss of my parents, I've always gone back to those words, that sense of the timelessness and the beauty of what poetry can do when the things that matter to you most are under attack, I suppose, or have gone. This is a great question from Sarah Fraser. How do you negotiate our need to identify and connect with your strong heroines in 2021? With the enormous differences in your heroine's ability to determine how they lived in the the 13 to the 1500s, is it ever a problem? It is absolutely crucial when writing historical fiction that your characters are completely set and with the mindset of the period of time in which the novel set. So my lead character, Minu and her daughter, Marta, they are women and girls of the 16th century. There are many very attitudes of that time, which we as 20th century and 21st century women and men would find inexplicable. But this is back to the point that we've been talking about, about the partial view of history and the inaccuracy of a lot of history. Women in the 16th century had a great deal of agency and power. Not all women and not in every country in the world, but in France, you know, the lead character, Minou, she is a landowner and she runs her estates. And within the Huguenot faith, there was a lot of attraction for women in the Huguenot faith because women could publish and they could speak and they could be part of the religious discussions in the way that Catholic women were not allowed as much. There were other periods of history. A century later in France, there was less agency. So it's always about your research and making sure that you know what they would have thought insofar as that's possible to do. It's very important because otherwise there is no authenticity to the storytelling. They cannot be, you know, parachuted in from our time with our views. They, they, they can't be, you know, parroting our words. I'm so glad you said that because sometimes, you know, one does read certain historical fictions and I mean, you see it a lot with some dramas that are televised. And it's also interesting, like you say, the research is everything. Because I was thinking, you know, Napoleon was the one who actually took away a lot of women's rights. Exactly. And women in the 17th century in England had, a, in many ways, a lot more power than women in Victorian times. Things went backwards for women in the Victorian Oh, yeah, the times. Civil War was this incredible period about, you know, women petitioning yes. and campaigning. And this is why I love history so much and why my Woman in History campaign is to say, don't believe that it's always been, you know, women have had a little bit more each generation that goes on. It's not true. And that's why it matters, you know, that we, we go back into the history and why I've been so thrilled that the Woman in history campaign has gone global. And people are just recommending women from every period of history saying, did you know this woman did that? No, did you know, for example, Samira, that the first dishwasher was painted in the 1880s by a woman? We probably should not be surprised about that because she thought it was too boring. All brilliant questions. I have one last one of my own to ask you before we finish, which is, you are a carer as well. Your 90-year-old mother-in-law lives with you and I know you've written about it in, for a new book. Again, it feels like you're using your voice to campaign on this issue, on recognition. Why is it so important? It's the same as everything, I believe, in every other field, which is 
don't judge a person by their age. What are they doing and what have they done? And, uh, and I do believe in respecting the older generation and that generation that went through the war. They are extraordinary. And so my wonderful mother and father used to live here. And Granny Rosie has lived with us for 25 years and was a brilliant, brilliant granny. You know, she's the granny that teaches everybody to do cartwheels and she now needs more support. And it, I'm very lucky to be in a position to be able to do that. The population is ageing. The language about ageing needs to change too often it's presented as a problem. Whereas we should be saying, look at our incredible NHS, look at what has been achieved, that more people are living healthily and well into their 80s and 90s. This is celebration, not a problem. We should be changing the way that old age is talked about so that there isn't that underlying idea that somehow you wear out. Because I can tell you that Granny Rosie is the best company. And when we finish this, we shall be in the kitchen and she'll have her G&T and I'll have a glass of wine and uh, we'll do the crossword. And it will be wonderful. I'm not making light of what it means to be a carer. Many people are carrying on their own or they're carrying for more than one person or they have very confined lives around it because of the nature of the carrying they need to do. And I'm very lucky. You know, Granny Rosie is in a wheelchair and she needs a lot of support, but we love each other. And, you know, that makes all the difference, too. So I just hope that the book, which is called An Extra Pair of Hands, will just be part of that. The idea that let's celebrate old age. Kate Moss, thank you so much for coming on How I Found My Voice. It's been a pleasure. This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jassat. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe. Tell your friends and your family to check it out. And we'd really appreciate it if you could also take a very quick moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This helps us to raise the profile of the podcast and it helps other people to find the show. Mm-hmm.